Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my Survivor friends. What follows is an interview I did for a podcast called Oh My Word, and it's a literary podcast where we talk about writing and such. I am interviewed by Esther, who is a lot of fun. And just to remind you that if you don't want to listen to these interviews, you can leave now before the plane takes off. Season three of the After the Apocalypse podcast narrative should be back at the end of August, with the main narrative, I'm clearly labeling these interviews and these extras for your convenience, so leave now if you don't want to listen to it. Otherwise, let's talk about it. So I have did three of these interviews on other people's shows to spread the word about After the Apocalypse so we get more listeners. And to prepare for these interviews, I actually went out and I subscribed to their podcast and I listened to a few of them. And that really helps. <laughs> that really helps. It helps me meet the interviewers where they are and makes me a better guest. And then I guess it makes me a bit of a chameleon in that way. I try to be the guest they want while still being myself. So I have been having a great summer and getting a lot of work done. One of my fun projects is that I am training to ride my bicycle across Massachusetts the long way at the end of August. I just do these things to keep my, to have something to focus on and stay in shape. Uh, this means that I have a lot of free time, though, in my head, out on long rides. And of course, when I have free time, I fill them listening to podcasts. And I know many of you are serial listeners to podcasts, like I am. So I'm going to give you some, not reviews, but the shows that I'm listening to that you might be interested in and a little bit of color around them, just so you can have those in your back pocket. We all share, we get better. You guys share with me what you're listening to. I can listen to it. All works out. Teamwork. So these are just the audio narratives or story podcasts that I listen to. I also listen to a bunch of history and other stuff. But I'll build a list with these names and links for you, and I'll insert it here in the show notes. And I'll also post it over on our Facebook page at After the Apocalypse. So first, uh, there are some science fiction podcasts that I've mentioned before. And all of these are the same format. They're read by, you know, somebody reads the story. And they're all typically somewhere in the half hour to 40 minutes long length. Um, you're going to find some shorter ones. You're going to find some longer ones. The distribution is somewhere around the short story length. The first one is Asimov's Science Fiction, I told you about before. 
And this is classic sci-fi type stories read by the authors from the magazine. And since the authors are doing the reading a lot of times, the audio quality and the read quality is kind of, it's all over the place. But there are some really good stories here. And there are only 38 episodes in the whole podcast, so you'll listen right through those, and the drop frequency isn't that often. So the next one is a podcast called Lightspeed Magazine, Science Fiction and Fantasy. And again, this is uh, the same sort of thing where they're reading stories from the magazine. It's a mix of sci-fi and fantasy, so you get a lot of uh, magic and witchcraft and dragons and stuff, too, in this one, which isn't my favorite, but might be yours. They are read by a team, a professional audio recording team in a studio, so the audio quality and the reads are typically pretty good. Uh, And again, there's about 38 of these as well. There's about 40 of these, Um, but they seem to drop more frequently than the Asimov's. Now, the the granddaddy in all this is a magazine called Clark's World Magazine. Science fiction podcast that goes with that, where they read the stories, and that's Clark's with an E. And they have the same sort of format, but they are read by an in-house reader, the same lady, and her name is Kate Baker, and she does a great job. And they seem to use, uh, just one thing I noticed was they seem to use a lot of translated Chinese science fiction, which is interesting. But here's the the deal with Clark's World. There are over 800 episodes, and there's some real gems in there. But that's like a two to three episode a month drop. You're going to find it hard to uh, keep up with that one. So those ones I already told you about at some point, but here are some new ones I've found. And I've listened through this summer. So I think I already talked about Dust. Dust is a YouTube channel that has uh, short science fiction YouTubes, videos. But it also has an audio podcast. And the audio podcast is a mix of a handful of standalone episodes and then two seasons that are based around themes. The first season... Flight 008 is an anthology where you have different writers telling stories around a premise of a flight from Tokyo to San Francisco that jumps forward in time through a time rift. And they use that as a loose vehicle to tell this anthology of stories about the passengers. And it it was pretty good. Some of those are better than others. But season two was really good. I just listened to season two and it's called Chrysalis which is this hard sci-fi, space sci-fi, about a vengeful human AI in a ship that takes on the aliens that destroyed Earth and wiped out humanity. And for this podcast, there's, again, about 40 episodes, and they're pretty short, um, but they're fully produced as audio dramas with sound effects and character voices uh, in this second season, so it's, it's really good. I would recommend that. And then the next one is a podcast I was turned on to by a friend, Dave. Hey, Dave. Called Escape Pod. And it's a pretty good sci-fi podcast where they showcase stories from different authors and they're read by different voices. And there's about 300 plus episodes as of this writing. It's a grab bag, but some are pretty good. Uh, next one is a podcast called Marigold Breach that I, I found. And it's a sci-fi serial about a guy waking up on a planet with an AI in his head 
in the middle of a conflict, and it's an audio drama with the character voices and sound effects, but unfortunately it's only 10 episodes long, so it won't keep you busy very long. Marigold Breach. Uh, The next one is a kind of interesting crime drama set in future Tokyo where China has invaded and the city and the country is partitioned, and it's called Ninth Step Murders. It's an audio drama with the character voices and the sound effects, and it's a decent story, but it's clunky at the same time. It's good enough to keep my attention, and I have been listening through. I'm almost through the second season now. But they do some things that bug me, like they have this recurring sound effect of the same 1990s phone ringing every time they're in the station, and it just is making me crazy. Uh, And it's also supposed to be in Japan, and they do a good job pronouncing the Japanese place names, but nobody has the slightest Japanese accent. And maybe it's because I work for a Japanese company, but it just bugs me. So the good news is, though, is that these episodes for this, Ninth Step Murders, is each one's over an hour long. Uh, The bad news is maybe they have a lot of commercials in there as well. So finally, I'll give you one more, and this is called Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. I just met this guy on Twitter. He does this podcast. I've only listened to one so far, but the storytelling and the read are pretty good so far, so I'll, I'll let you make your own decision. So that's how I've been whiling away my time as I'm out on my bicycle this summer, and I figured I'd share because I know Many of you are looking for stuff to listen to. As for our show, After the Apocalypse, we're on track to start Season 3 in a few weeks. I've started working on the episode flow and hope to get a head start on writing in the next few weeks. I'm also working my way through the Season 1 manuscript with the beta readers, and we'll be working on fleshing that out for a book this year, if I can swing it. And what else? I have finished writing the second episode of the Alien Noir series. It's in editing, and I hope to have Mike read that for us, and we'll publish that next week. With any luck, I have this uh, this problem, which is you may be familiar with. It's having too many projects going at the same time. <laughs> but the fastest way to solve that is to push through, so I'll keep pushing. And you, my survivor friends, enjoy your summers. Keep your heads down. Keep surviving, and enjoy the interview with Esther on the Oh My Word podcast, which is coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, 
Welcome, listeners, to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today, we've got a really special treat because we've got Chris, Mad Dog Russell with us, and he is a writer and producer of a post-apocalyptic podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Esther. So, I gotta say right off the bat that I love your energy. Thank you. I appreciate it. I listened to a couple of your podcasts, but like, finally, somebody bringing some energy. And it's important because energy makes up for so much more. You can be bad at a bunch of stuff. If you have good energy, nobody noticed. It's really true. Like, if you're going hiking and it's gonna be a terrible hike and the person is all pumped, you're like, well, I'll just go with it because it might be fun because of that person. I'm gonna hate the hike, but I'm gonna love being with that person. It's like sales, where you go, well, I don't really like the product, but this person's so happy, I'm gonna buy it anyhow. Very true. So, let me start with the origin story. How did you get into all this? Where did all this start from? You're like, this is what I gotta do with myself. Well, first the earth cooled. But uh, I will explain my origin story with a little bit of a different uh, slant or can't because I usually go in and start with my influences of science fiction and that sort of thing and how this story when the pandemic started just sort of forced itself to be written. This podcast I'm doing, which is after the apocalypse, it's a audio drama about an apocalyptic plague. It's doing really well. But when I thought about it, listening to you speak to your guests, it also, you know, has to do with all the Russian authors I read as a kid on the airplanes, all the Hemingway way, all the Nabokov, the Burroughs, the thousands of literary books that I used to digest in my career because I traveled a lot, I would just be trapped on a plane and read War and Peace. And if I think back about that, you can't go wrong stuffing your head full of that stuff. The only problem that you get to a point where it has to come out and that's how you become a writer. It's like putting too much in the blender and turning it on high, it comes up. So, I mean, I think that's the origin story for your audience. Okay, one second, one second, one second. This is not part of the plan, but you mentioned War and Peace, and I'm glad you did, because I tried very hard with that book. It took me maybe two years to read it, and then when I was done, all I could think was, am I missing something? Because this book, everybody's afraid to say when they don't get a classic. I understood the classic, but I didn't understand the classic part of the classic. As in, why do people read this? And I have a friend who was like, my second time around. I'm like, what do you mean your second? I only did once. I barely did once. And I think you're right. I think that book, in terms of that genre, that group of writers, I love those Russian writers from that time period because they're so literary, but so morose at the same time. It's just sort of a beautiful feeling to it. But I think you're right. I think Warren piece was more of uh, the Stephen King version of a Russian novel. It was the popular version. But if you dig deeper into some of like Chekhov and Dostoevsky and those sort of things, they get pretty dark. And I'll tell you, it's work to read that stuff. It's work to read Nabokov. Lolita's a beautiful book. These are all beautiful books. And the prose is wonderful. And the, the vocabulary is wonderful, especially when you consider they're written in Russian. And I don't read Russian. I'm reading them in English. They're just beautiful books. So I agree with you. War and Peace was a little heavy on the narrative. And you can quote me on that. The Stephen King book of that genre. I had the same argument with people on my podcast about Stephen King because they were like, oh, you're doing the apocalypse. You must love The Stand by Stephen King. I'm like, yeah, not so much. It kind of was like just a really, really long novel for me. Well, anyways, you said that you have this blender. Everything's in, everything's in you. You're showing your brain with all this stuff. So it's just got to come out. But why does it specifically come out like this in a podcast? Actually, the way you're describing it, it's kind of like old radio theater. It's kind of what it is. It's just some people don't do that on the radio anymore. So you're doing that on a podcast now. Yeah, because I know podcasting. I've been podcasting since 2007. I've had a, a running podcast. And I've been one way or another writing all my life. I used to write for 
for a running magazine. So I've always been pumping out in the old days, we call them blog posts, those 1500 words of what you're thinking about at breakfast every day, right? I was also one of those people who's also had the science fiction book in the bottom drawer my entire life, where you, you write four or five chapters and then get sick of it and, and put it away. But when the pandemic started, it was the perfect storm to do something. I have to do something. And this story forced itself to be written. I'm saying, well, do I want to really do a book? No. Well, I know podcasting. And I could just write it as an audio narrative because part of what I've learned over the years writing for podcasting, because I'm I'm not one of those people who just shows up and talks. I actually script in my other podcast that I had for 12 years. I scripted every essay and every story in there. Part of it is the practice. But when you do that, you realize that writing for audio is different than writing prose for a book. Audio has a certain cadence to it, has a certain melody or music to it, and the prose has to reflect that. So I had those skills and I said, well, I can do this as a podcast. And then I was thinking, um, you know, I can read it myself. I'm like, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to get somebody to read it for me. I did say, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we had a bunch of different voices and Foley effects and all that? I said, no, if you bite that off, you'll never get it to market. You know, you'll never get it done. So I said, a third person narrative, we'll get somebody to read it for me. We'll try to make it pretty high quality. It's been fun. It's been really fun. That's great. You kind of preempted the next question of some of the differences between writing for audio versus writing a novel, especially because one of the tips they give to writers is read your stuff out loud to see if it actually makes sense. So you can still say there's still kind of that component tip, but aside from the, the cadence, what else do you see are some of the differences? It's something you learn over time. If I'm reading it myself, I know what the cadence is I'm looking for. So it's just like presenting to an audience. You're presenting, you're emphasizing certain words, you're putting in pauses. So the negative space is very powerful when you're doing audio. And what I realized when I first started working with Robert is I had to direct him on all all that stuff. I had to write that direction into the script because I'm not used to writing scripts. I was just writing prose. And in my head, it sounds like this. But then he reads it. And it doesn't sound like that. And sometimes it sounds better, but a lot of times it doesn't get there. And I had to do a lot of retakes. We're in 40 episodes in and we work really well together now. I'll give you an example. I had the final episode was episode 20 of season two. I just released a couple of weeks ago. It's got a lot of action in it. And it's got a, all the main characters are sort of coming together in a conflict. And I wanted to write it as sort of a fast cutting scene. So you get 50 words on this person's point of view, then 100 words in this, right? So you're, you're changing perspective rapidly. The guys who helped me with the editing, they said, you're going to lose everybody. Nobody's going to know what's going on. I said, no, we can do it. I got to script it to Robert to say, you got to have just that slightest bit of pause. So you have that sort of wave and it stops. And it starts again. And that cues the listener that you're changing perspective or changing scene. They get used to the cadence of the read. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever written for the stage before, but it sounds like there's going to be a lot of similarities there. Yeah, by accident, I've turned into a screenwriter. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but by accident, yes, I'm a showrunner now. Well, just as a technical thing, can you say about how many words makes about how many minutes of audio sort of thing? Do you have some sort of measure of that? Yeah, for me, it depends how fast you read. We're doing maybe 3,000 words an episode. And on a slow read, that's going to come out to 20 minutes. On a fast read, that's going to be 15 minutes. On a medium read, that's 17 minutes, right in between. So you're basically writing a short story for each episode. Yeah. I've actually made the leap from like 1,500 words to 3,000 words. And that doesn't sound like a lot, 
but it is when you're trying to put together a narrative. And of course, it, it drops into scenes. So you have maybe three scenes in a 3,000 word episode. If you get more than that, then it gets a little tricky. Okay. Or okay. you could have two scenes. It depends on, you know, how much internal dialogue, how much exposition. So you sort of have to write it and see how it feels and then either uh, go back in and, and kill some stuff or add stuff. And usually it's adding stuff. So I'll target 1,500, 2,000, 2,500, somewhere in there, and then go into the editing process knowing that it's going to get up to 3,000 or over. Right. And then when you started this, you were just thinking, we're just do a season and see how it goes, or you actually had some sort of long-term vision for it? So my long-term vision is and always has been to do five seasons because I don't think one season is enough to really tell a story you know 20 episodes and the reason I did this is because it's a book so yeah, 20 yeah. episodes at 3,000 words is 60,000 words or within spitting distance of a novel so that was always my intent was to to have these as a five series because if you're going to be an indie author you need quantity as well as quality so at some point I'll release these I actually have the manuscript from the first season out with beta readers right now to see if I can turn that into a book. Each season would be the equivalent of a book? Or you want to do one massive? Oh, so you did write the book, you just did it in a different way. Here's my pro tip for you and your audience is you're staring at a book and it's like, oh my God, 60,000 words. Ah, but if you sit down every other week and write 3,000 words, you will have a book. That's true. Did you have any thought or now actually sitting down to put the first season together as a book? Are you adding anything to it? Are you changing anything to it? Do you feel like it's got to be faithful to what this season was? That's why I want the beta readers, because I'm too close to it. And being from Boston, it's really hard for me to say beta reader. <laughs> so I think that it probably should be 100,000 words, and it's 60,000 words. So um, that's what I want back from my beta readers is, okay, what didn't I say? What right. doesn't make sense? What can I write in that's going right. to add, not subtract? Because I hate when authors do that thing where they have a really, really good 20-page story and then they turn it into a 400 page novel with the same content war and peace no all business yeah, yeah, books yeah. like that they take a yeah. 10 page paper and they turn it into a 200 page business book are there any characters that are fan favorite characters that you could give them more uh, space then yeah absolutely and some of those i planned and i had those characters in my head going in and then some of them emerged in the space and became real characters, which was surprising to me, where I had never planned for them to be more than just somebody passing by in the scenery and all of a sudden they're main characters. And I'll tell you something funny. So this genre, this science fiction apocalypse genre, it's an interesting audience. So I have a lady who is actually going to cosplay one of my characters in a couple of weeks at a convention. Winner! But how about that? That is great! She's like, what does this character look like? I'm like, um, I don't know. <laughs> Throw in some camouflage. There's the other 40,000 words you have to describe your character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I missed that part. Well, it is true because you say 60,000. It does not sound like a full novel. A lot of novels that are out. I mean, you don't have to exactly do what everybody does, but especially if you're talking about adult science fiction, they're usually much bigger than 60,000. Right. You got to get to at least, at least 100. But again, you don't want to add it if it's not there. The other thing that I'm starting to understand or realize about the market is just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you have to do it too. As a matter of fact, if you do something different, you're going to get better sometimes. It's true. 
Especially when you're the one who has the, the creative control of it. You already have the seasons out there, so you know that people like it. But I'll give you an example. So for book covers, they'll always tell you, well, go out on Amazon and find all the other novels in your genre and look at those book covers and do something like that. That's terrible business advice. <laughs> Make my stuff look exactly like everybody else's stuff. Okay. It's template. I always use this example. They're starting to move away from it a little bit. So some people might be like, what are you talking about? They're not doing that anymore. But for a long while, all the historical fiction, a lot of it for the last couple of years, has been World War II historical fiction. Whatever, that's what they decided the market. Probably 75% of the covers that I saw were exactly the same thing. It was the back of someone, usually a woman from the back, looking over a city or something. And I'm like, did I just see this novel? And it's like, no, 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 it's got a different name to it. They're walking away from the camera into some landscape. Yeah. That's 90% of the novels. You know why? Because yes. people can't draw faces. I actually don't mind not seeing the faces, but it's like, you already have this cover out. Why are you not doing a different cover? I was testing cover designs with my um, Facebook group of some of my listeners. And one of the things that they get really angry about is if you put faces on the characters because they don't look like what they think they are. And you get 10 people, they all have a different picture in their head. So that's another reason why you always see these book covers with somebody walking away from the camera. That's the one thing I told my publisher is come up with all the ideas you want to. I really prefer not to see faces. It's also a personal thing. That it's not even just imagination wise, I just don't like it. But really covers just have to be cool. Like why does it have to be a template? If it's a cool cover, I'm gonna look at it. Oh, can you do a glow in the dark cover, please? I just thought of that. So why don't you do that? Why don't we have those? I'm throwing out those covers that designs that I did originally with that exact template on it and i'm going oh, yeah. to do something specific to what we're doing something more graphical which i think will draw the eye you're looking on i don't know let's say amazon you get five covers are exactly the same and one that's different win yes anything that catches the eye i'll automatically look at the book it will stop me it does people don't like it but it's fact and if i see an ugly cover i just don't look if it looks the same, like, didn't I see that already? Yeah. What they're saying is you, you got to be able to look at that thumbnail and see, oh, that's a romance novel. Yeah, okay, well, that's fair. Oh, that's a science fiction novel. That's what they're saying. You need that to jump out at people. Okay, fine. So you won't put a catapult on the cover. Okay, let's go back to the, uh, so you knew right away that you wanted this to be five seasons, but how much of the actual story did you know? Or did you have a general idea? How much of it did you plot out before you started season one? How did that all work out? So again, I've been growing into this role as a, as a screenwriter, like we were talking about. So my original sort of methodology was this stuff sort of leaped fully formed into my head. And my job was just to get it down on the paper. And that tends to be very episodic. Like you'll see a scene and a character doing a thing. But if you're writing a five novel series, you can't do that because then you just end up with a bunch of episodic stuff you have to string together. So you do have to have that longer arc. My overarching thesis for the arc, five season arc, is that, you know, we're in the apocalypse and you have different centers of gravity. So each book addresses a new center of gravity. Think of the center of gravity as an organization or a group of people or something like that. And the interesting part of that is all of them have different ideas on what should be done and what the future looks like. So you have this built-in conflict between those centers of gravity. So over the five novels, I'm building out different groups. And then my ill-defined resolution is to have all those groups come together for the, the resolution at the end. Like the Battle of the Five Armies, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. One thing that actually I just want to comment on is that you said something about how you had certain characters that ended up 
becoming more kind of than you thought they were. You see that sometimes with TV series. You'll have the pilot and it seems that it, they're gonna focus on certain things. And by the time that season's over, you realize that they drop certain characters. <laughs> like they don't show up again. You can see that they intended, oh, this character's probably gonna be something. And then you realize they were like, nah, it doesn't work, get him out. <laughs> just like slowly fade them out. And we'll just have, it's not even slow fade, just fade out new one. That's part of the fun. It has to do with that chemistry. You think you know what they're going to do when you put them together, but you don't know what they're going to do until they do it. Right. Which I guess sometimes is when you're going to outline, but you don't outline too much because you want to stay open for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I, I have gotten to the point where I do storyboard every episode and I storyboard the seasons loosely with, like I said, I have some people who help me or advisory board type, but they come up with some great ideas and they see holes where I don't see holes. I'll storyboard it out or I'll write an outline and I'll share it and we'll have a session, sort of a writer's room session around it for the season. And then that sort of roughs out the 20 episodes. And then when I start writing my way through those episodes, things change. We had the meeting, but I thought of something else. It is what happens. It's not right. Like that's what happens. And that's supposed to happen. That's know? supposed to happen. If you don't have the structure, then you can write yourself into a corner, which I have. And I have, I have written myself into a corner going, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. But then I'll be out either one of the people who would my readers will go, this is how that resolves or give me some ideas or I'll be out walking the dog and go, aha, I got it. Going back a second, you said that your readers will sometimes come up with things. So is that they send you stuff in or you see them kind of discussing with each other? I, I meant my sort of advisory board oh, 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 readers. Oh. So I have three guys who are friends of mine who volunteer to look at my outlines, give me feedback. That's nice of them. They're good friends. Very yeah. helpful. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you know what else is helpful is they have different points of view, right? So they're different people. So you don't want to surround yourself with a bunch of people who are just like you or just think just like you. You want to have people who think differently. And you may not use that stuff, but it causes you to think better. Absolutely. That's why a a lot of writers push for like the critique groups. You need someone to get you out of your own head and you don't have to take what they say, but you have to cause you to think kind of thing. Right. And then the whole post-apocalyptic thing, was that just because, oh, pandemic, everyone's freaking out at the end of times. Oh, we got to write this post-apocalyptic thing or there was something else? I love the genre. You know, I've read a bunch of the classic novels around this. It was a big apocalypse I don't know, what would you call it? A golden age after World War II, especially as we got into the 1950s and the Cold War with the nuclear war stuff. There was a whole bunch of this stuff that was done and it was really done well. If you look at something like, I don't know, Godzilla, right? That's nuclear war fear of nuclear war. It's the broader theme there. So there's a lot of that. And and I read through that. I really enjoyed it. And I always wanted to do this type of novel. Like I said, it's been in my bottom drawer for a long time. Would you say that there's something about science fiction that automatically has like a post-apocalyptic kind of dystopian something to it? Because most of the time people have moved off planet, either because like, oh, we're exploring, but we don't usually care about Earth anymore at that point. As far as the story, it's not like Earth is still beautiful, but we also have another planet. It's like, we ditched Earth, new planet. Yeah, and I, like you were talking to your uh, the professor there about, right? That gives people a, a white space or a free space to do whatever they want. Yeah, Colby Granwell. It's like a cartoon and frees you from the constraints of physics, so to speak, and you can do whatever you want. You can test themes that may or may not be acceptable to test in real life. And you see that in classic science fiction and even the classic science, the golden age of science fiction was like the 50s and the 60s with like Asimov and Heinlein and, and those guys. They didn't think they were writing science fiction. They thought they were writing speculative fiction. They thought they were the leaders in how the future is going to look. 
book. So they were taking credit for the nuclear bomb when it came out because they had been writing science fiction about that in the 30s. They saw themselves more as like smarter than everybody else is one way to put it. That's how we ended up with a lot of crazy stuff that I won't go into. Okay, so let's take it. Take it. Were they saying that because they actually thought we were going to move off planet and that sort of stuff? They were saying that because... X, Y, and Z happens. These are the kind of, you know, governments that will grow out of it. This is the kind of behaviors that will grow out of it. Yeah, I mean, if you read the Asimov stuff in particular, right, where you're looking at the Foundation series, he does a bunch of that world building where he goes, what if you had a planet with only 30 people living on the whole planet? How would that impact the cultural makeup of that society? What if you had a planet where they had paved over everything and then came back and started tearing it up and planting crops? You know, this is Again, it's off planet, but they're still testing different futures, different conditions and different futures. So they're, they're playing with that. And, and I always found that pretty interesting, that sort of world building. I mean, a lot of the science fiction, frankly, is just regular fiction in a different place. There's a lot of this military science fiction, which is just military fiction in space. And it's yeah. fun. But yeah. it's no different than Horatio Hornblower or it's, you know, it's romance in space. It's just, I don't know, maybe it's an easy way for to put some difference into those genres. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, if you call it a space opera, it's supposed to be this big epic. But why is that different from epic fantasy kind of, which is also a big epic? I guess if there's spaceships, you have to call it science fiction. And if there's magic or whatever, you call it fantasy. And I think it comes right back to what we were talking about before we started recording, right? You got to have a point. There's got to be a point. There's got to be a reason for me to care as the listener or the reader. Like, why do I care? What's the big idea? So when you're doing this as a five-season thing, is each season kind of focusing on a different point or question or something like that? Because then is that kind of why you have five different centers of gravity gives you five different perspectives? It's different worldviews from that sense, but also the character arcs. You take the characters from where they started before the apocalypse through to where they end up. And they can end up in some pretty horrible places. They can end up in interesting places. A lot of it is what is the point of living? If I just lost my entire family, why am I doing this? And so you can play with those kind of themes and it gets really dark and I like that. There's a lot of sort of anti-hero theme to it, which I I like a lot. You know, I don't like heroes to be heroes. I like heroes to be troubled and, you know, loners and and that sort of thing. Exactly what you just said also goes back to what you said before, where that a lot of the stories are kind of the same. It's just where it's set that kind of defines the genre of it. Because the second you said this, where you said the people are deciding about living and what's the point of living kind of if the whole family's lost. There's a young adult book that came out I don't even know how many years ago at this point, well, you know, 10, 15, I don't know how many years ago. It's about a girl, she's in a car accident, the whole family is killed, and she's the only one alive, and she's deciding, should I hang on to life or should I let go? And it's exactly that question, and that's contemporary. It's kind of supernatural, but it's not really ghosts, it's just because you're in the girl's consciousness, I guess you could say, but it's it's exactly that same question. Different genre, different whatever, the same question. Yeah, universal themes. Yeah. I think also, though, sometimes when people talk about universal themes, sometimes it might sound a little maybe intimidating or something like that. Like, but how do I find the theme of the universe? How do I find the question that I read? And it's like a lot of questions that you ask on your day to day or sometimes when you get philosophical with yourself. Those are the universal questions. Like, you don't have to you don't have to hunt them down. You see them all the time around you kind of thing. And you just have to know how to, like, I guess, make the connection or something. And I also, going back to your question about the apocalypse, when you have an apocalyptic setting, it gives you a chance to just have some fun with, you know, some irony in the way people have thought they were living their life. And all of a sudden, this happened. You can call out how silly a lot of the stuff yeah. we think about on a day-to-day basis is. Right. I spoke to a writer. His name is Jonathan Mayberry. And he's got a bunch of different... He writes horror. He writes thrillers. He's like 
whatever. He's got a young adult series, Rod and Ruin, which is a zombie apocalypse. And we were talking also about his book is not really about zombies. It has zombies in it, but that's not re what it's really about. It's about you think these are the rules of nature and the rules of nature change. So now what happens to you? Like, who do you become then? How do you deal with it? So the apocalypse is basically that. If the whole world all goes to hell or whatever you want to call it. So now who do you become at that point, right? What are your new reasons, your new focuses, your new priorities, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great game. You could play this as a writing game and in a class, walking down the street, look around and pick somebody out of the crowd and say, what would that person's story be in the apocalypse? What sure. would they do? Think about how, how creative you can be with that. Like I said, there's irony, there's horror, there's, yeah, it's a great playground. It totally redefines people watching. Going back to like the whole, um, you got to know what your point is. So that's kind of also that I read this article about writing series. It was kind of going on a road trip. You have to know where you're going. Even if you don't have an exact itinerary, you got to know where you're ending up. So as you're writing it, have you thought you knew where you're going? And then all of a sudden you realize like, nah, the question I think I'm answering, that's not really what it is. There's new things I haven't thought of before once I get deeper into this world. Yeah, so I've had that come up because of the episodic nature of writing an audio story. You're necessarily, it, it fits very nicely to a story form everybody knows, right? So you can have three episodes where the first one is sort of the exposition and the crisis and the resolution. So you can have these sort of waves of action that way. But I have gotten into those and, and found side paths that needed to be explored. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's part of what you discover when you start writing. It's like writing a podcast, but also being part philosopher, ethicist sort of thing. <laughs> or moralist. Is that a word? Moralist? Can we make it a word? Moralist. Yeah, everything's a word, right? Here's the thing. You're talking about words. And I know you're going to ask me about the hate and love thing, so I don't want to waste my bullets. But a lot of the indie authors I read, they sort of dumb down their prose. Like uh -huh. some editors telling them you got to write to a 10th grade level. I'm like, bullshit. Sorry. <laughs> Don't know if I can swear in your podcast, but I want my listeners to be smart. I want to treat them like they're smart. I want to use a word every once in a while that you got to look up if it fits the narrative and fits the audio at that point, which yeah. is the other thing. As a writer, you can read and hear the music in the prose. Yeah. But if you're writing that for audio, there actually is music in the prose. So you can play with the sounds of words. Some words sound soft, some words sound hard and depending on what you're trying to do in that scene you can play with the sounds of words to enhance the read right yeah that's so true you can stick in like shocking words words that sound shocking but really aren't yes exactly okay i got two more questions that we could wrap up one is do you have this is a total personal opinion because you kind of spoke about sometimes your characters could go to dark places do you have any some sort of i'll only take them so far but i don't go too dark kind of thing or like there's certain things i won't write about kind of thing or it's like well we're exploring so everything's fair game for exploring this kind of thing yeah so you gotta be careful in the way you salt in the the horror whether that's psychological horror or physical horror or whatever and yep. i don't like to use it as a thing in itself i like to use it as an exclamation point at okay. some point in that character's journey so it's a appropriate. I really shy away from spreading that. You know, you don't want it just be constant horror or constant depression. Typically what I'm doing with the character arc is if they're going dark, they're going dark, they're going dark, they're going dark, and then they pull out of it. And maybe that's because of an interaction they had or something that happened, or, you know, there's some other stakes at that point. You want to run them. You want to have that internal dialogue of, should I keep doing this? That's the tough. apocalypse is a dark place. Well, that's true too. And I was like, yeah, apocalypse. That's like... The Count of Monte Cristo, which is probably one of my favorite classics, and I think after everything he does, if people know the original, none of, none of the film versions, forget it. I, mean, I don't usually care about adaptations, they don't bother me so much, and it doesn't bother me, but 
you don't get the actual story unless you've read the original. You have this whole book and it, he puts in a chapter that's like three pages maybe of the internal dialogue of maybe I'm not the one who's supposed to seek judgment and, and vengeance sort of thing. Oh, well, it is what it is. Okay, bye. I'm obviously exaggerating, but it was like, what a great way to resolve it. <laughs> yeah, and, and so in, in my case, you've got people who before the apocalypse would have been a mother or a, you know, a professional or, or something, and now they're essentially murderers. They got to stay alive, right? But what do you do with that? How do you get from their A to B? What happens to your character that they're, they go from being this, this person to this person? And that's, that's a fun arc. Again, it, it's, yeah. it's the anti-character because yes. you're, you're still rooting for them. So it's not irrational what they're doing. You're still rooting for them, even though they're, what they're doing. And, you know, if it wasn't the apocalypse would be pretty horrible. Right. Well, so you can also ask if it's a fight for survival, are they an actual murderer? As in, does that get suspended or changed kind of when it's the fight for survival? The me or him kind of thing, or you're right. That does go back to what Colby Granville from After Dinner Conversation was talking about of the questions that are really at the core of all this. And it is true how science fiction lends to that, like you were saying. I guess also because you're just so removed from the world, so you can actually ask the questions. Because if you would ask in today's society, it would be, as in a contemporary, it would just be too close to home. And whatever answer you give, you're just going to, I think you might get too much of an emotional reaction without the logic also part of it sort of thing right people would shy away before they got there with the science fiction you can kind of sneak them into it yeah well okay. oh so you're saying it's okay if i go do this like we're not talking about you right now but in the science fiction you're like see we're talking about a different world that doesn't really exist it's fine and then just as also sort of like a technical thing because you said you, you wrote for a running magazine so was writing kind of something you were always going to do from way back when, or it's sort of something you fell into? I always loved writing, and I was always good at it, that part of my education. You know, I got a classic sort of liberal arts, New England prep school. Luckily, you know, I'm blessed with having that sort of input. But when I got to college, I looked at my options and said, well, you know, I can get this journalism degree, but I really don't like starving. So I'm going to go get a business degree and an engineering degree instead. But it was always there. You know, I had a minor degree in English so it was always there and it was always nibbling at the back of my head ah very good so just for wrapping it up you foreshadowed it you wrap up with the I really like it when and then feeling any of them you could use podcasts anything storytelling relating so I really like it when X and I really don't like X so how are you feeling the blank for that so one of the ways I ended up where I am is I really love science fiction anthologies and they pump these out right across the last 40 years you'll find these 600 page novels that are made up of a bunch of 20 to 60 page stories. And I really love those because in each one of those, there's typically one really good idea that you just, you think about it for weeks after you read that, that one, you know, 30 page story, you're like, huh, that's a really good idea, right? There wasn't enough there or they weren't able to wrap a whole hundred thousand words around it, but there was a really good idea there, right? And I really like those. It's sort of like, I don't know, the popcorn of reading for me is the science fiction anthologies. So, and for the other question, you know, what do I, what do I hate? I don't hate anything, but what turns me off, I've been reading through a lot of the indie author fiction that's available now, you know, sort of the Amazon stuff, the serial stuff. And the market has convinced these people that they need to write six novels a year. And it eventually it just turns into all action. There's no point to it whatsoever. It's just these characters in this universe going through this constant stream of jump scares. And eventually I tap out. I go, I just don't care anymore. That's not what I read for. I don't read to wait to take up my time. I read to have it make me think. Actually, on that note, I know someone who sometimes, if I say something about film or whatever, he's like, look, I sit down in the chair, 
There's a switch in my butt that turns my brain off, okay? I don't want to think, entertain me. And I'm like, I can't, I don't know that I can do that. Like, if you're not going anywhere, I just don't. So it's funny. Some people actually, I guess, want that. There's a place for that. There's a place yeah. for chase scenes and car crashes. But you can't live on a steady diet of that. Good point. Very good. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Yeah, it's been a blast speaking with you. Thank you for your energy. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring writer and podcast producer Chris Mad Dog Russell. Find out more about Chris and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. Find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to. Follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Please check us out at eltenabout.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.